52 episodes, 52 ordinary people, 52 real stories about things that affect overall health. Because there is a lot more that goes into being healthy than food and fitness. Inspiration, support, a new perspective, and knowledge. You'll find that and more here on the HealthAbility Project. Hi, welcome to the HealthAbility Project. I'm Robin McKenna. How does having a loved one in prison affect one's overall health and well-being? And what about the toll on the health and well-being of the families of the incarcerated? Here to share her story about how being married to an incarcerated man and working with families of the incarcerated affected her overall health and well-being, as well as the families she worked with, is Allison Coleman. Allison was born in Brooklyn, raised on a farm in New Hampshire, and settled in Albany, New York, where she morphed from hesitant introvert to social change activist and progressive criminal justice expert. Allison co-parented with her incarcerated husband, raised a deaf child, founded Prison Families of New York, Inc., and traveled the state and country to speak about the effects of prison on children, families, and communities. She was president of a struggling Albany neighborhood, a member of the Albany Human Rights Council, and adopted a Syrian family to whom she quickly became Teta, which is grandma in Syrian. And the good news is, they are now U.S. citizens. Allison founded a New York State criminal justice think tank and continues to share her abilities to organize and strategize with people who ask for help creating their vision. Welcome to the HealthAbility Project, Allison. I am so glad to have you here and so excited for our conversation. Thank you. Thanks, Robin. It's fun to be here. I always get a kick out of people who say, well, it all started in second grade. But (laughs) in my case, it didn't start in second grade. I don't remember second grade very well, but it started in 1977. I had uh, left a job with uh, developmentally disabled people and had some free time. And someone asked me to become a volunteer at a local state prison. And I immediately said no, because I was scared. And then I, um, thank goodness, immediately said, what are you scared of? You've never been there. How can you be scared of something you haven't experienced? I went in as a volunteer and then became more involved as a volunteer and then filled in for someone who tragically died. And it completely changed my life. I was in my middle 20s. I'm still in touch with five of the men that I met in 77. They're all out and doing very, very well. And and it completely it changed me so much in ways that I so appreciate. So one of the things that I, one of my mantras, so to speak, is that if it scares me, I should think about doing it. Now, I don't mean jumping off a building. I won't bungee jump. But if, for instance, I was And I was a little scared to walk into a household of Syrian refugees who spoke no English. I should do it anyway. And I did it and it became one of the most wonderful chapters of my life as I helped them to negotiate life in Albany, New York and English. And and they're all doing so well and we are all so in love with each other. So that's one of the things that um, is important to me. I met a man, Jay, at the prison that I volunteered at. And he came out and went back into prison. 
and he came out. We got married, and we had twins. One of the babies died at age 16 days in my arms, which was a very special experience for me, and harkens back to what I said about fear. Many babies in the NICU die, and their parents aren't there, Mm. sometimes because they just can't be there logistically, but sometimes because their parents are fearful, and I just thought, I, I absolutely need to be there with my child, and in fact, I chose the time that she would pass. Our other daughter is um, was born and, and raised as a hearing impaired, profoundly hearing impaired person. She's fluent in sign language, speech, lip reading, and there was just no fear in learning how to raise a deaf child in the best way possible. She's a, a trainer now and, and does very, very well for herself and does interpreting too. So Jay was out, we had a baby, and he was sentenced for the robbery of $18 for which he got 25 to life. And in New York state, 25 to life means you do 25 before you go to the poll board. And he did 25 in the course of that. Well, well, right away, I realized that number one, we should be able to be a family despite prison, but number two, without information and support, I wasn't going to be able to do that. It was very confusing and scary and threatening and, just every emotion you can think of. And he ended up at Attica for for quite a while. We participated in the family reunion program, which is a a wonderful thing that New York State Prison sponsors. It's very unusual for the country. And we had a second child, Andre, who is now 40 years old. I created Prison Families of New York because I didn't know what else to do for myself. And I don't do things halfway. I started support groups. I got money. I created a program. Back then, this was before the internet. So the problem with the program is that uh, as it gets bigger, the prison system's so bigger. And I was doing so much with families who were hiding, as most of us were back then. We were so scared. We hadn't become an entity to be um, recognized and, and respected by the state. And part of my goal was to get us up to the decision-making table so that we could not only get stronger individually, but become a, become a force and become a population that was recognized. And I can say that over the 30 or so years that I did that, that did in fact happen. And it happened because I gathered families together all over New York State, support groups and working groups and think tanks, and we really changed the prison system. One of the reasons that I'm 72 and still doing what I do is because I have my mental faculties, thank goodness, but I don't want to retire what I know and so few people on on the criminal justice radar screen in New York State. No, I have this memory of how it used to be and how it is now. So I did that for most of of 30 years. And toward the end of Jay's sentence, I got breast cancer. I'm the only person in my family to get cancer of any kind. Could it be related to the stress of having an incarcerated loved one? It's impossible to tell. But I will say that that during this time, my daughter and I, she had become a teenager and older, and we did workshops all over the state for all kinds of entities that could or should or would be working with prisoners' children and prisoners' families as the special populations that we are. I remember doing a workshop at 
Rochester, one of the colleges, for resident physicians in the field of family medicine. And what we taught them was to think about if they're working with an eight-year-old girl who has asthma attacks and the asthma attacks are tracked and they look really bad on the second Monday of every month, could that little girl be visiting mommy in a state prison on the second Sunday of every month? Definitely something to think about. Families don't always want to share their incarcerated loved one the fact that there is one but on the other hand it makes us sick it real prison makes us sick and so that was part of our message that with information and support and providers all around who recognize that we can improve and our families can improve and our children can improve sometimes we don't want to tell our the teachers of our children that are that our child has an incarcerated parent because that stays in the record forever. Mm -hmm. And we don't necessarily want that to happen. But on the other hand, what I found from working in the community was that social workers are usually aware of the kids who have incarcerated parents or uncles or aunts or older siblings and feel helpless often and want very much to create something that's safe and supportive and informative for kids. So that's the upside of that that experience. I mean, what you're saying is just astounding to me. It seems that your desire to not be stopped by fear drove you to find support. And in doing so, you created support for others, which became this whole other ecosystem, which really just had was was a fo force multiplier for families all over the state of New York. Um, and I want to go back to something you and I talked about in a previous conversation, which I just also found so poignant is you said that you ask yourself, why me? And then you say, well, why not me? Exactly. And, and and I think that dovetails quite nicely with your approach to not allowing fear to stop you. And, you know, it seems that you've become a role model to others as well, because, you know, in the situation of incarceration, I can imagine that fear is paralyzing and then families get stuck. And then, you know, overall health and well-being is just exponentially affected. Thanks for bringing that up, Robin. A, a very small example is someone has a loved one in a maximum security prison and they send in packages of food or clothing and the packages are stolen. And so often, by, by correctional officers, mm -hmm. and so often the fa families come to me with what seems like a very small problem and they're absolutely terrified to do anything about it, thinking that there will be some kind of retaliation. And often there is. So we have to think carefully about how to respond to it. I still do those little kinds of issues. Oh, again, they're not little. For me, they're little, having so much experience. But I usually work in the areas of death and dying and brutality and and, and severe illness, those kinds of issues that, that take the development of a strategy and, and good connections in the prison system. And I also run visitor centers in 13 state prisons for a for a New York City based not for profit. So I'm still very much in that realm. Jay got out after 25 years and we had a number of years our my adult our adult children were still living with me because they wanted to experience living with their dad and we had good times. Eventually Jay and I decided that prison had 
changed our marriage to the point that we didn't want to live together. So I moved out and that was fun. Actually, we stayed good <laughs> friends, parents, grandparents. And after about 12 years out, and Jay did a lot of work in the community on the issues of people going into prison and how to get their balance when they came out, he got liver cancer. And I was with him as we went through all the diagnostic steps. He was being released from the hospital and, and we had remained very close friends and we didn't have, neither one of us had a new partner. And I suddenly was moved to say, do you want to come stay with me for a couple of days? And he was moved to say yes, instantly. And he stayed with me for six months until he died. And his last words to me in the hospital were, am I dying? And I said, sweetie, I, th I think you are, but I'm not sure when, and I'm with you every step of the way. I'll be here until the end. And he died in my arms. So it was a wonderful way for us to make amends. I mean, what a great gift we were given. And I always, I've written down some of my mantras because they're real important to me. And one is always, what is the gift in this? So it wasn't about Jay dying, we're all going to die. But it was that I was given the opportunity to be there in the hospital with him for three days. He was in a coma. I slept with him in his bed. I knew him well enough to be able to laugh about certain things, knowing that he would laugh if he was conscious. Mm -hmm. And the kids were there and all of our friends. It was just a big going away party for him. The hospital was wonderful in allowing us to have as many visitors as I wanted. So we had 20 and 30 and 40 visitors. It was a party for Jay because he'd lived a good, good life. You know, it's interesting that you say that you adopted the approach as well as what is the gift in this. And I think that that is such an important thing because we all go through tough things and we can either let it get us and destroy us, or we can find some way to, to find strength and, and move forward. And, and that, you know, looking for that silver lining, so to speak, is, is just, it's healthy. It's healthy. And uh, it's, it's just really remarkable. Well, my life is silver, if you want to put it that way. My life is just silver. I when I had cancer the second time, breast cancer, and I had a double mastectomy, and Jay actually brought me home from the hospital. So that was special that he could have a part in it. My response wasn't, why me? It was, why not me? I guess I could, I could do this again. But it was really, wait a minute, I thought I'd been there, done that. And then I thought, no, I, I guess I, I didn't. It's different this time. So I had the opportunity through both cancers to meet people I never would have met, do things I never would have done. The first time around my last chemo, I my mother and I, she was still alive and we brought in a big cake. I passed it out to the patients who were having chemo. And there was a young man who was clearly in prison. And he had two correctional officers with him. And I said, do you all want cake? And they said, yes. And the young man said, what is this for? And I said, it's my last chemo. Isn't that great? Maybe when you have your last one, you'll have a cake. And he said, I'll never have a last chemo. In other words, chemo was keeping him alive. And that put a different perspective on my life. I don't know if he's, I don't know his name. I don't know if he's alive, but I always thought about him that I could do things in his name. And my daughter said something significant to me. I think it's clear I'm a take charge kind of person. So when I had chemo the second time, she said, Ma, you are not driving the bus. 
And I'll never forget that, that that made a whole lot of sense to me because I was used to being the bus driver. Right. I create projects. I drive that bus. And, and uh, you need to be the passenger. It's really, really hard. Yeah. But when she explained it to me, what she saw happening, it was it was much easier. Yeah. And sometimes it's definitely necessary because you need to give yourself a break just to recharge in whatever way that may be. And obviously, maybe your daughter saw that in a physical way or maybe even emotionally. But uh, that is really very funny, driving the bus or being the passenger. I think about that all the time. Let's go back for a minute. You said Jay had been incarcerated. He came out. And then the second time he went in was for a minimum of 25 years. Exactly. When that happened, what were you thinking? How did that make you feel? I mean, there must have been a tremendous sense of anger. You and I had spoken previously, and you had said that the judge who meted out that sentence was known to be a very severe um, dispenser of, of justice in a way. And Maximum uh, John. Uh, he was known as. And he said, I'm going to retire, and before I do that, I'll give out as many hundreds of years as possible. And the sentence was legal at that time. Mm -hmm. It became not legal via the U.S. Supreme Court some years before Jay came home, but the decision was made to be not retroactive. The courts would have been jammed all over the country had retroactivity been a part of the decision. So we just believed that we were supposed to do this and we would do it in the best way possible. And, and we did. And how old was Jay when he was released? I can't remember. I, I'm not good about ages and, and it, it all runs together. He was, 25 years is a long time. Yeah, he was 50 something. And in that 25 years, is that when you became involved and, and created these different groups? And yes. Okay. Yeah. As a result of him going to prison, I, I don't do things part way. I just I do them the whole way. That. <laughs> so I, so I, um, yeah, I created Prison Families of New York and incorporated it. And I remember somebody saying, "Well, what attorney did you use for the incorporation?" And I said, "I was supposed to use an attorney. I did it myself." <laughs> so, um, and and we had groups all over the state. And as the internet developed, well, what happened was, uh, I did it for a number of years. I got burned out. I went and did other things. And then I had, then I got cancer and chemo and I was lying in bed bald and I heard a voice. Some of you have heard voices. You know what I'm talking about. So my son said, Ma, you heard a voice. Was it a man? Was it a woman? Did it have an accent? I don't know. But it was a voice saying, when were you at your best? And I said, I cursed at the voice. I said, I'm not going back there. I'm not doing prison families work again. But I finally had to negotiate with the voice because it wouldn't stop. And I said, I'll check with the IRS to make sure our not-for-profit status was okay. And it was. And then I will call our Catholic bishop. I'm not Catholic, but he was very supportive of me. Oh, wow. And I called his office and I said, and I, I need an hour with the bishop. And the secretary said, oh, bishop only gives half an hour. And I thought, good. I don't have to do this. I said, never mind. Never mind. Good. And I was like, I don't have to do it because he won't give me an hour. They called me back and said, Bishop says you can have all the time you need. Wow. And I said, oh, shucks. But this time around, <laughs> Bishop <laughs> said, get better. <laughs> so I went back when I had hair. I, he gave me an office. He gave me a car. He led me to some funds. He gave me health insurance for 10 years. He agreed he wanted no part in decision making about what I was doing. 
And he said, go do the work. Wow. Wasn't I blessed? Go do the work. But that you, what you were doing, influenced or affected or impacted, whatever word you want to use, a bishop and Mm -hmm. motivated him to the point of giving you the resources you needed to be impactful with people. Well, he was always a strong supporter of what I had done prior to seeing him then. And I knew that I was taking some work off of his hands because he often got letters from from people in prison. So I would then handle all of those letters. So it worked out very nicely. And I had an office there for many, many years at, at no cost. I was I was a stepchild, but I was beloved by the Catholic diocese in Albany. And and it was those connections were were really important to me. Did you ever have any of the families, whether it was a mother or a child, come up to you or get in touch with you and say, gosh, if it weren't for you and and the resources you provided, I don't know where we'd be? Oh, probably thousands of times. But I'm not a miracle worker. I'm not an angel. I mean, I've been called many, many very nice things. I understand the value of information and support. Mm-hmm. I had a woman come to our Albany support. Our groups ran every week and we had some of the same people come for years, even decades. Mm-hmm. I had a woman come whose 16 year old son had taken a BB gun to school and hurt some people, didn't kill anybody, went to prison for 17 years. She, I contacted her attorney and said, let her know there's a group. She came to group. She was a weeping mess. Who could blame her? Now she's this incredibly strong advocate. Um, her son is out and doing well, but she became an expert on the issues of teenagers going into prison, brain development kinds of things, um, violence in teens, that kind of thing. And I used to joke with people, let's all go to a legislative hearing. If you're scared, I'll bring the paper bags. You can put them over your head, but we need to be present. And people developed from being really fearful And they developed because of a support group. And it was a guided support group. It was very carefully crafted to develop people's strength and give them the information that they needed and build community. I'm I'm really about building community. Now, those face-to-face groups, for the most part, don't exist, but they do exist online. So it's become just a new new kind of venue, but very, very important. Mm -hmm. How about your children? Have you ever had conversations with your children about how having an incarcerated dad may or may not have affected them or Uh and even Uh after he came out and was living with with you as a family? When my son was probably 18, he and I went to Florida to an annual national conference on prison families, and we were keynote speakers. Andre had never, ever spoken in public before like this. And we talked a lot about it. Now, this was a warm, friendly, large audience. He said, Mom, I'm going to go first. And he stood up and he said, my name is Andre. And I was conceived at Attica. And I went, whoa, good for you, Andre, because he was. We had family reunion visits. So many people on the outside don't know about this, but so many people who have loved ones in prison, the visiting rooms are full, full to bursting. You had a name for it. It's just sort of this, it's not underground. It's not an underground community anymore, but it used to be. And now so many more people are speaking out. Corrections has become 
much more pro-family as they finally developed an understanding of how important we are to the equation of getting people out and keeping them out. And I'm, I sometimes question that that's really what the system wants, because if it did, it could do so much better. Mm-hmm. Now, I could run a good prison. I could run a prison that was focused <laughs> on getting people out and keeping them out. But that's not what we have in this country. Mm-hmm. So we really have to question um, motives mm-hmm. in some cases. And it's complicated. It, it's complicated with employment issues and locality issues. We had prisons in New York State being built in very, very rural areas where people were not given a choice of working in a computer plant or a prison. Prison was built and they were given the opportunity to work in a prison. But those many in New York State, and I think this is is pretty consistent across the country, many of those prisons are built in very white communities. Mm. And those white people are given the responsibility of keeping mostly people of color in cages. Mm. And that, to me, is unconscionable. But it is what it is, and we have to work with that. I like what you said earlier about the fact that you could run a good prison. That maybe that's your next calling is is advocating well, for. Well, I've often said to my think tank, you know, we could we could any of us. We know how to do it. We know how to do it. And if prison systems were given some kind of incentive to work with people on while they're inside, get them out and keep them out, we wouldn't have prisons anymore. And they could do it. They could do it because I know how to do it. Also, too, and I, you know, you would be in a better position to answer this, obviously, but people when they're in prison, their health and well-being is tremendously affected as well because they're isolated, they're not treated well, they don't have a good quality of life. So you have an individual who's already down and maybe they just think that there's no rehabilitation with somebody who's in that state. I don't know. I'm totally guessing. I would love to hear your opinion on that. Well, you've mentioned a couple of issues here. We know that mental institutions were shut down, what, 30 years ago? And now prisons are the mental institutions. Prisons in the streets are the mental institutions. Mm -hmm. So some of that, there's more health care than ever, at least in New York State. I remember when Jay was in and suddenly all men over a certain age were routinely given a... um, some kind of test. I can't remember what it was. And they had never, that had never happened before. So that was a change in the system being pressured to, to looking at the general needs of people of certain ages and handle it better. But we still have, I hear every week of, of a multitude of cases all over the state of, of medical neglect. And it looks, it looks to me like it's, it's, Medical neglect that could so easily be avoided. People are transferred from prison to prison and their medication is stopped, Mm. just stopped. So I teach families how to negotiate that. And Mm. some families are so scared, but they also are so desperate to make sure that they're loved. And I've had people, I've worked with people whose um, artificial limb was taken from them. Mm -hmm. This is very common, very common situation. So what I have been doing all these years is teaching people how to pull out the strength inside of them and do what maybe they've never done before with the prison system or maybe they've never done before in life and to get tough and to encourage each other to get tough 
and fight this. It's a horrible system. There are some really good people who work in it, but somehow the system is like this bulldozer that just rolls over people in general. And we have a, an understanding that people who've done a certain amount of time, maybe 20 years, come out as if they were 10 years older than they are. The stress, the bad food, the the distance from family, or family who's just said, we can't do this. We're not going to do this. So bye-bye. See you whenever we see you. It's just so it's just so sad all around and it and it weighs on people in a medical sense in an emotional sense certainly. Mm-hmm. You are a remarkable remarkable woman and so inspirational. The fact that you went on this journey and became fearless and your fear your resilience to fear motivated you to help others and you you work with people to help them find inner strength to get through this horrible horrible stretch of time in their lives is is just remarkable i am so thrilled to have had you on this episode today allison thank you so so much for being with me today can I add two things, Robin? Yes, please. I was going to write this in my little biography, but find your inner loudmouth and bring <laughs> it out and use it when you have to. Use it in a pleasant way, but in a persistent and very clear way. And then for me, my absolute favorite saying, and I love sayings, is in the end, it will all be okay. If it's not okay, it's not the end. Perfect. And when I think about that, I think about Jay, that we separated, but we came back together and we did the end of his life in absolutely the right ways. His last words were, I love you. And that just says it all. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's very emotional, but very sweet. I'm so glad I had that. I'm so glad I had him in my life. Yeah. Thank you. That's just beautiful. What a great way to end the episode. Thank you. Listeners, hopefully you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, please like us, share us, tell your friends about us. These stories are for everybody, no matter where you are on the face of this earth. And stay tuned for next week. And if you have any comments or questions, please email me at thehealthabilityproject at gmail.com. We'll see you next week. Thanks for joining us today at The Health Ability Project. We'd love to hear from you, so please email us your questions, comments, or suggestions, including future guests, to thehealthabilityproject at gmail.com. And please, like us, subscribe, and share us with your friends.